This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. I can't believe we are already halfway through season three. I started recording this season back in December of 2022. And Denise Baden was, I believe, the second or third person I interviewed for this season. I waited to slot all my guests in, including Denise, after I interviewed everyone that's in this season. Denise, a professor of sustainability and a climate storyteller, is going to kick off a series of three special episodes here in June dedicated to teaching climate action in the college classroom. Denise Baden is doing a job that I one day hope to do. She writes climate fiction. And by the way, they're all really good. In this discussion, she shares a great deal about her writing process, something that I'm super interested in. Climate stories that she's written, the value of her butterfly mind, and the great topics like nation rights for oceans and why the composting toilet Yes, the composting toilet is the perfect example of circularity and why we should all have one. So put on your headphones, grab a nice cuppa, and relax to the summer episode with Denise Baden. Hi, I'm uh, Denise Baden. I'm Professor of Sustainability at the University of Southampton in the UK. I'm also a climate activist and I have a side hustle as eco-fiction author. You can find me online at dabaden.com, that's B-A-D-E-N, or at greenstories.org.uk. Denise, it's wonderful to have you here on the program. Uh, I'm thankful that you had some time today. Eric, I'm delighted to be invited. Hello. Yeah. We had a, a small conversation a week or so ago before we started recording. And you shared with me a lot of things that I hope to get into today. So uh, you have a lot, you have a really impressive career. So I hope to be able to get into everything, but if not, well, uh, it's just because you're do so much, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I wonder um, what led you to be doing this work in sustainability and authorship around climate. I guess I started off studying politics and economics actually way back and uh, then went <laughs> then went out into the world of business and then I came back to study psychology, do a PhD in that. And somewhere along the way, I became a greenie. And I, I think what prompted <laughs> it was I read a really funny book. It's a funny adventure book by Ben Elton uh, called Stark. And... And in it, he kind of introduces little green vignettes amongst the the main plot. Mm-hmm. You know, he might introduce a character called Dave, and he says Dave was a water birth, and within moments of you know being born, he he died. And then you find out Dave was a dolphin caught in a tuna net that was oh. dolphin friendly. And I suddenly thought, oh wow, that's tragic, you know, because I really got to like Dave. And I think, well, I can buy tuna friend uh dolphin friendly tuna that's something i can do and it was my first hint i think Mm. that you can reach people through stories through fiction without making them depressed or anxious yeah and i would never have watched a climate documentary so and that i read a few more of his books and he does it really well and i suddenly found i was a bit of a fully fledged greenie and and that's what led me into this work (laughs) well that's awesome uh 
and there's the the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, right? Which uh-huh. the the underlying message is environmental, but you can enjoy the story without even seeing that. But I think you get it in the end, right? And that's, yeah, they're the best stories. Yeah, you write stories. You're a sustainability professor, author, and what I found was super interesting was you're also a you you're a playwright. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I've been a butterfly in my life. But I think sometimes when I'm up against academics who just focus down into one area, know everything about it, I feel a little bit like an imposter. But Mm. then I think, well, I've done so many different things that actually I think I've got quite a good bird's eye view of how it all connects and how it fits, you know, in, in one piece. And that's really great if you're a writer who wants to imagine a better world because yeah. I know a bit about politics. I know a little bit about finance and economics. I know a bit about business. I love art and literature. I did a science foundation degree way back. So yeah. having a butterfly mind has actually paid off in the end. Yeah. Yeah. My friend calls yeah. that conversational currency where you, oh, right. yeah, you know, a little about a lot of things. And yeah, I like the way that you described it as giving it like a bird's eye view, a big, a bigger perspective. And when I was reading through your website, your couple of websites about the things that you were doing, there was part of it that uh, I really connected with and that I'm also a professor and teach in sustainability, but I have so many other interests, right? Yeah. And I can't just do that one thing. No, that's right. And I mean, a restless mind, you know. Yeah, that's true. I have a totally restless mind. It can be a useful thing. And I have to say, since I became a fiction writer, even during the heart of the COVID crisis, I never once felt lonely because I was busy constructing my own own worlds, my own characters. We're building worlds, yeah. (laughs) Building worlds. And I had complete control over my fictional world. And I have to say, it was a wonderful feeling. It got me through that time. Well, you are doing something that I hope to do one day, and that's write fiction and particularly mm-hmm. science fiction. And my partner asked me last weekend uh, about my bucket list. My birthday yeah. is coming up, and so I think that's why, right? And yeah, there's places I want to travel, but I said I'd like to write a fiction book one day. That's on my yeah. that's on my list. And you've done how many now? Three? I guess so. I mean, I've done. Three short stories for the anthology, uh, No More Fairy Tales, Stories to Save Our Planet. And I contributed to two more. And that was fun, writing with co-authors. One was Steve, okay. a chemical engineer working for Herculean Climate Solutions. And, and he'll wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, the story will just come to him. Really? <laughs> and he'll write it all down and he'll send it to me. He's like, there you go, I've written another story. And it's like... There's great ideas here. Where's the plot? Where's the character? <laughs> yes. And unto um, it. And then so we brought in Martin, who's a freelance comedy writer. And together we'd actually get his really great ideas into a, a great story that none of us could have written on our own. And actually yeah. it was a very fun sort of uh, partnership there. And not something I was used to, just sort of having fun writing fiction with other people. Oh, yeah, that would be fun just to bounce ideas off somebody and vice versa for 
when you when you're need a robust ego. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got to check that. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what was indeed. interesting too about the writing you were doing was you wrote a play about Fidel Castro. Yes. How how did that happen? <laughs> and it was performed in London, right? It was. So what happened there actually? I, I had a, a really good friend and, and colleague who does a lot of stuff in the pharmaceutical sector and mm -hmm. public health. And she said, do you know that Cuba has more innovative drugs and treatments than, you know, Western medicine? Okay. And it's tiny and has no money. How does that work? And I, at the time, was teaching business ethics. And I was interested in Cuba for a whole other reason. Because when you talk about things like sweatshops and greenhouse gas emissions and things like that, you begin to realize that business leaders only have limited power because they operate within a competitive environment. You know, they right. might decide they want to give everyone a fair wage and be nice to the planet, but will their shareholders let them? So I thought, well, what does business look like in a country which is all about solidarity and, and so on, where you don't have that capitalist background? How does that work? And I'm really interested in human nature versus environment and culture. Yeah. So I went to Cuba, and I guess I expected it to be all full of brainwashed people you know, ruled by this dictator. And it, it wasn't what I found. I, I found very politically literate people who could discuss the difference between, you know, market socialism and neoliberal capitalism. Keynes, you know, yeah. they, they were very, very politically literate. No one was afraid to talk to me. And so I was doing my bit of research on uh, Cuban businesses and enterprises, and also working with my friend on the bigger pharmaceutical sector there. And we came back and, and wrote a paper about the pharmaceutical sector. And, and the reason we discovered is that their metric of success is health, first and foremost for the Cuban people, and then second, world health, global health. Yeah. Our metric of success in the West is profit. Right. And actually, it's more profitable to do 101 drugs for something like acid reflex, which lots of rich people suffer from, sure, than right. to invest in quite difficult research into, you know, diseases like cancer or antibiotics, where we're encouraged not to really use them. And so we tried to publish the paper and we were told, no, because Fidel Castro is a brutal dictator who ruined the lives of his people. This was from an right. academic journal and we hadn't mentioned him. He That's the peer even... review, right? Just yeah. No, this, and then we tried again, and again the editor overruled the peer reviewers, and it seems apparently it's the Cuban curse. You cannot write anything that isn't critical of Cuba and get it published in a highly really? ranked journal. No, I know it's shocking. It's really shocking, and it wasn't what I'd seen. I mean, I was talking to people who ran the, you know, ran papers. And they were openly debating with me and critiquing certain aspects of the government and bureaucracy. They weren't scared to talk to me. Right. They're not an oppressed people. I mean, it's different. I mean, if you say, do you have a, you know, a multi-party democracy with a free media? They'll say no, and that sounds terrible. Yeah. But if you say, do you feel you can contribute to the country's policies? You find out that everyone <laughs> attends these councils, almost like sort of citizen assemblies, when they mm -hmm. feed back on policy, and most policy changes as a result of that. And suddenly, just from asking a different question, they seem like a model of participative democracy. And it's like, yeah. you cannot 
have a conversation about Cuba without being massively divisive. And I thought they've had to be sustainable. They're about the only country that has good literacy and health and, you know, or the UN Development Index, those metrics, and lives within its own planetary footprint. The only one. I think Costa Rica's close as well. Yeah, islands, nations have to. They do, and it's, you know, they partly it's because of the embargo, but they've made a virtue out of necessity. There's so much we can learn, but you can't write about it and get it published. So I thought, sod it, there's only one one thing to do, write a musical. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Because Cuban music is so much fun. And I know I got to know some Cuban musicians. And yeah, we, we did that. And we put it on in my local town. We put it on in London. And I could have gone further with it, but I stopped for two reasons. One is I started getting stalked by nasty people. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's like they say, you know, Fidel this, Fidel that. And as if I was basically, you know, uh, dallying with the devil. And it's like, well, if everything you said was true, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's not. You know, this is yeah. a very partial story. He's not a hero. He's not a villain. He's, you know, he's in power for over 50 years. Bit of good, bit of bad, like most leaders. You know, but he's been demonized. And, and I got demonized along with it. I thought, I don't want that. And also, it was really demanding. Yeah. <laughs> I had to devote myself just to that. And, and that wasn't my cause, really. My yeah. cause is more sustainability. So, yeah. I still think one day I, I would love to go back to it because it was really fun. And maybe there's uh, another play that you need to write. I, well, that's happening at the moment, Eric. Is it? And yeah. what is this one about? <laughs> one of the stories I wrote for the anthology. No More Fairy Tales Stories to Save Our Planet was called The Assassin. And it's eight people in a citizen's jury and they're debating climate solutions. And just to make it fun, one of them is an assassin. So it's a (laughs) lovely opportunity to explore these different climate solutions. Also to promote the idea of citizens' juries, which are kind of, you know, like a direct form of democracy. You randomly select a representative group of people they're informed by experts, not just conspiracy theorists. <laughs> right. Echo chambers. You would hope And so. they, they actually, research has shown it gives rise to quite long-term, thoughtful, more sustainable policies. Mm-hmm. They're great. I mean, I think they're the magic bullet that could avert a climate crisis because they do make those kinds of policies that a government on a four-year electoral cycle, and often paid for by corporations, might find it hard to do. So I, I really like the idea of, of using this story to promote the climate solutions and the idea of citizens' juries. And then a lot of people said this would make a great play because you've got a set location. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got funds now to turn it into a play. That's wonderful. Yeah. One of them is just going to be just a fun one for the public, but we're also going to do one with a bit of audience participation where we engage them in what solutions they'd like. So they're kind of almost like part of that citizen's Mm -hmm. jury. Yeah. There was one movie in the US, The 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. So let's similar to that. Well, in one of your uh, pieces you wrote, you said something like, 
all the solutions are right here. They just have to catch on. Yes. And that I agree with that. I, I hear climate scientists say that all the time and that we already know how to fix our climate crisis <laughs> or at least advert the worst of it. We'll just say that. And we just have to embrace the change. And so I'm wondering, as you are a storyteller, you're also a sustainability professor, of course, what have you found through telling the stories that you have that have really connects with people around the idea of embracing the change needed? Okay, good question. Uh, well, firstly, one size does not fit all. <laughs> yeah. It was Steve, the chemical engineer, who originally said, let's do this anthology of climate solutions because he was full of great ideas for capturing carbon, you know, turning rigs to reefs, you know, to capture kelp and seagrass. You know, because we all focus on planting trees, but there's way more land in the ocean to capture carbon with that yeah. isn't given over to agriculture or housing. You know, the glaciers are melting. That's what about refreezing them? And as an engineer, he loves all these. And he had this idea, let's write it about that. But myself as more of a social scientist, I thought, well, hang on a minute. If we're going to get all this stuff going, what do we need to get there? First, you need to harness the power of finance mm -hmm. to fund these things. Second, you need to make the decisions. So that's why I thought of citizen assemblies. So I looked at what that would take and then looked back what we'd need to get there. And I thought, we can't get there until we start judging our success by our well-being. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we judge success by the gross domestic product, which is basically production and consumption. Yeah. That overlaps with well-being, but it's not the same thing. Right. So all conversations are about the economy, not whether or not, you know, we're doing well. So I, I thought a first step is switching to a well-being index or happy planet index. And some countries have done that. So several stories reference that and raise awareness. We've got one. Uh, one idea, which I think is wonderful and I'm really excited by, is the idea of the ocean as having nation status. So, as I said before, we focus so much effort on our land, but the ocean takes up way more space and it absorbs oh. way more carbon if we let it. <laughs> and a number of people have found, and our, our head of law at Southampton University says a great way to protect nature is to give it legal status. Yes, um, yeah. New Zealand's done said, that, right? Yeah, and someone said that it was Steve who was talking to someone at the, the Ocean Summit, and they said, well, America only achieved success once it became independent and threw off its colonial status. Right. You know, <laughs> by analogy, the ocean can only achieve its full potential once it has nation status. And then it can, at the moment, you know, we can't do whatever we want to the land, but people can trawl the bottom of the ocean unless it's a marine protection area. Yeah, you they know, can. They can yeah. fish it, they can pollute it, put plastic in it. There's very little protection. We use it all the time. Like if we go by rail, we, we pay for the maintenance in our ticket price. If we go by ferry, we don't. No. So we completely take for granted something that is so essential to our planet. If you give it nation status, it could charge for those services and it could put that money 
into things like those all coastal areas, maybe planting mangroves that reduce erosion, provide seawalls, capture carbon, you know, planting kelp, seagrass, protecting what's there. Yeah. All these things would make such a difference. And so we wrote three stories. One was where the idea was just being floated. One where it's just started and the, the president of the, of the ocean is having to negotiate, you know, uh, issues like conflict and people not paying and so on. And then one set in 60 years in the future where we look back and actually see how it worked out. Yeah. And uh, Steve took this to the Asian Ocean Summit in December last year, just a couple of months ago, and goal. People loved it. They were really inspired by these stories. And now we're thinking, right, can we get this on the agenda for the next World Ocean Summit? Oh, yeah. And really start getting some traction behind it. You know, we've written the story. Now can we make it happen? Now, is this story in your latest project, which is the No More Fairy Tales Stories yeah. to Save the Planet? So we've got book. three stories on that theme. Mm -hmm. So it's a real mix, actually. Some of the stories are more techie and science-based. Some are more about social science solutions like the assassin is more you know citizens juries and so on yeah some are more about nature one's about a turtle and again the genres are very different you know some are funny some yeah. are tragic some are both some are dramatic some are quite dry and informative some are very poetic and lyrical so one of the things i found which is why i started off by saying one size doesn't fit all is we got loads of feedback from readers and the idea was we keep the ones that people liked and then do an updated edition because we got way more stories than we could use in the end. Do an updated edition for COP21. But people all like different ones. There's just no consensus. Of course, right. No size, no size does fit all, right? Yeah. So, you know, different things appeal to different people. So actually, I'm not even sure what we could drop now. It just become a bigger and bigger. Right. <laughs> Well, I'm curious about then, you, you just touched upon this in terms of when you presented at this ocean summit, or <laughs> your, your partner did, co-author did, and I'm curious about what you feel writing fiction can do for the reader in terms of imagining a better future. Uh, what are your... What are your sort of thoughts on that as as someone that creates stories? <laughs> okay, so what's bothered me for a long time about the world of climate communication and climate fiction and climate movies is that they focused almost entirely on the problem. Mm -hmm. And the idea has been if we say how terrible things will be if we don't address it, then people will do the right thing. But yeah. actually, I've done quite a lot of research into this, and some people are scared into action. But just as many people go into avoidance, mm -hmm. denial, or they just get scared, you know, eco-anxiety yeah. is a real growing problem. Or they become preppers and sort of buy up all the guns and toilet roll and you know, hide out. We've seen that you know, happen, right? <laughs> yeah, none of which are constructive responses. And another thing is only people who are already interested are going to read these. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was why I set up the Green Storage Project back in 2018. There was no one filling that space of, hang on, what would a sustainable society we might actually like to live in look like? What would yeah. it look like if we do it well? 
Yeah. And then can we show that in some way? Not necessarily, you know, some might be set in the future, some might be right now, but touch upon bits of it in different contexts. So we run about 15 different writing competitions. We've got one going on at the moment, a superhero competition. And, and this is the Green Writing Challenge? This is a yeah, totally new, new project that you're doing. Well, we, it's not new. We've been running it for five years. We do a different format each time. So we've different. got a novel okay. prize, short stories, TV series. You know, it's all on the Green Stories website. But one of the reasons I started writing is people still kept writing about the problems rather than the solutions. Like we had, I don't know, so many stories about people going off to fight evil, you know, rainforest loggers. Yeah. Well, a one, you know, your average reader is not going to ditch their job and wander off to Indonesia to confront evil, you know, tree choppers. Two, they're not necessarily evil people. They're driven by the circumstances. Yeah. You know, they got to pay their rent. You know, they're, you know. Yeah. Eat, eat, but eat. when I wrote Habitat Man, for example, which is about. That's your first my, novel, right? That's my first novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weaving in and out of all the different We are. I'm sorry. I'm totally fine, right? <laughs> It happens in stories called flashback. We're in a flashback <laughs> at the moment, right? <laughs> um, but he's he. This is about a guy who he gives up his job to become a wildlife gardener and he help people make their gardens wildlife friendly. And in the process, he falls in love and he digs up a body. Now, when you've got a body, you've got an opportunity for a funeral. And you know, then I can talk about natural burials. You know, you don't want to put a load of good wood into the ground. You know. Right, yeah. So, and actually I found that we did, University of Utah actually, doing some research on reader responses to Habitat Man and the natural burial scene, loads of people said they changed their wills to really? have a natural burial. So fiction can change behavior. What did you write in that that got them to You'll just have to read it, Eric. Uh, you'll have to read the book. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But... But that will help it. If you start looking, hang on a minute, do I need to eat all this beef? Do I need a mahogany coffin? You know, mm -hmm. but uh, so these kinds of things do make a difference. So I've forgotten the question now. I have gone off on a track. <laughs> well, we went into a flashback, but we were we were talking just about how you as a writer can, uh, how you see these solution-based um, yeah. stories impacting the readers. That's it. I'm getting there. I'm getting back. So I think a, a lot of the existing climate fiction, it can lead to eco-anxiety. And what I want to do is focus just on the solutions. Mm. So, for example, in Habitat Man, there's so much I could have said about biodiversity loss and extinction and the dangers of pesticides and so on. But I focused on the story and characters and the solutions instead so people could enjoy reading it i mean yeah. you don't have to know there's a problem in order to actually think this is a nice practice i can engage in yeah you, you can bypass the alarm and go straight to let's do it this way because there's usually very good reasons for green behaviors other than the environment as well and so that's been my approach I, and i kind of want to harness that eco anxiety <laughs> And try and tie it to constructive, effective behavior change. And yeah. what I've found through quite a lot of research now, that if you show characters that you can relate to, 
engaging in behaviors that you feel you can do that are, you know, environmentally friendly, that is much more likely to lead to actual behavior change. I see. Where just saying, oh my God, everything's going terribly wrong. Yeah, we're doomed. It leads to this kind of passive despair. You know, someone should do something rather than, I know I can do this. <laughs> yeah. And I also just want to cheer people up because I, I suffer from eco-anxiety myself. It's a byproduct of being in this field. Yeah. If you're paying and attention, it's hard not to. Yeah, so I don't watch a lot of stuff about climate just to protect my own mental health. I, I yeah. will focus on the solutions. I like things reasonably upbeat. And that's not for everyone. Some people like it dark. Yeah. But that's that's not how I roll. Like I like to, you know, go clear-eyed into a situation, but let's focus on what can be done and bring in a sense of agency to it. I wonder there if you are reading enough of these hopeful novels uh, that Denise is writing, that you might be able to watch some of these documentaries that are sad and not <laughs> but, go into a, a, you know, a fetal position because you see that there are solutions, right? It's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I wonder. I don't know if that's been researched, but... That would be... Uh, that would be an experiment you could do. Does it inoculate you against that? To buy, certain buy all of Denise's books, read them, and then go watch <laughs> any any manner of eco documentary and see see how you're feeling, <laughs> and report back. I also think if you know having a positive vision to latch onto is is really hopeful. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the solutions we need are difficult for politicians to talk about. You know, we have quite an adversarial media environment. You can be quoted out of context. As a fiction writer, the, you know, the world is your oyster. So yeah, I do is. think there's a responsibility, actually, on writers if you're writing fiction. If you are attempting in any way to change people's minds or behavior, just to double check you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You've got to do the research on the topic. You can't just... yeah. I mean, I, make I it up. made mistakes and then had to go back and rewrite and thought, hang on, I double checked my facts. I thought this was a good thing. It turns out it's not. Nope. You know, I was promoting sustainable palm oil and then I looked into it and actually it's not that sustainable at all. Yeah. The screenwashing, um, yeah. It's a kind of fake solution. You know, the real solution is to find ways to, to use less. But to bring it back to design, you know, because that's your area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think... All of it starts with thinking about the end result in a broad way. So it starts with a, what is the intention here? What kind of world do we want to live in? And is that in whatever I'm designing, whether it be a product or a service or, or a policy? Yeah. But like my oven was clearly designed, yeah, by someone who prioritized what things look like over health and safety. It's got a hob with lovely, beautifully curved metal where you put the saucepans on. Curved so wonderfully and aesthetically that the saucepans fall off. Splashing hot water and oil. You burn your hands, basically. I would wager the person who designed that had never cooked in his life. Yeah. And so, again, when you design anything, think ahead. Like... Quite often we designed for efficiency rather than resilience. Right. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, we designed for performance rather than sustainability. We, we designed yeah. for single use rather than to use, repair, reuse. So I just think having that mindset, what does sustainable world look like in your head and designing for that is yeah. a good mindset to have. I always, I, I got into writing, I would say from a serious perspective, maybe 10 years ago. Uh -huh. And I always considered that writing process for me similar to my designing process. And I'm interested to know from my listeners, if you write, uh, if you agree, I know many of you are design educators, so you, you do both, but I'm interested in your creative process and how you write your stories, because it does seem that you could be thinking about the the moral or the end result before you write it. And that's what you're sort of poking at the designers to do as well. And so <laughs> I like that I do that and I think it's really helpful. And I find my writing process is as messy and I guess, stop and start as my design. So I'm, I'm curious about yours. I want to nerd out about writing here for a minute. <laughs> oh, oh, I would, I could nerd out about writing forever. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> I, I had to find, I had to learn a lot when I moved from academic writing to fiction writing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different. Very different. I, and I have to say my early drafts, my partner were like, don't give up the day job. <laughs> <laughs> Because I wanted to put it all in there. And it's just like with, with my stove, you need to balance health and safety with aesthetics. Yeah. In writing, your first priority, I guess, is the reader's attention. Mm -hmm. So, and if you're writing for a cause or you've got anything you want to say, the danger is that you overload that. And what I had to do is write it all down to get it out of my system, mm -hmm. then look at it and just think people aren't reading this for a lecture, for a debate. They would read nonfiction if they wanted to read all this. Yeah, it's like a sketch, you know. You... Yes, I had to write it just, just to get it out of my system. Mm -hmm. And then I probably took about 90% of it out. Really? 90%? Well, no, I'm exaggerating, but... In the process of doing that, the characters became more and more real to me mm -hmm. and their backstories became more and more real and I became more invested in the characters, which is, of course, what the readers will do. That's what they're yeah. reading. And then it became easier to show rather than tell. Like I started... And that's on, really important. Of that, I mean, that is the mantra. Yeah, so show not tell. Every point I wanted to make. It's like I, I wanted to talk about burials. So I thought, well, let's have someone die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so you can show rather than tell. And yeah. I'd say every draft and redraft, there was more showing and less telling. So the key points remained in there, but the reader discovers them through what happens rather mm -hmm. than being told anything. Yeah. And, and that's the. I think that's the mark of, I feel I've developed why I now do that more instinctively. Whereas when I first started writing, I just had to do so many drafts. You were describing before, it as opposed to. Showing. Yeah. Before I got used to showing it. 
but that's that's the key point is how can you make it entertaining and engaging yeah. well in in climate and uh specifically climate solutions show not tell is also a great mantra because i've seen yeah. so much research on if you have the ability to you put those solar panels on your roof you show that solution to renewable energy and your neighbors slowly adopt right they see what you're doing uh and say oh, maybe i should look into these solar panel things i've example. seen so much yeah i've been I mean, seeing a lot of research on that and one thing actually maybe your listeners can help with and do let me know if you get any feedback on this the current thing you're struggling with with the play the assassin if you remember wind back a bit yeah it's the one set in a citizen's jury where they're debating climate solutions i went to see an agatha christie play in london witness Classic. for the prosecution yeah and it's kind of the you can actually be a member of the jury it's a little bit of interaction so oh, wow. interactively done it i'm going to pay the ticket price i'm going to go and see it it's a murder mystery party murder mystery and the very opening scene the accused is thrown onto the stage and the police are sort of holding him down he's going no, no and then a gallows is erected trigger warning here this is a little bit yeah yeah it's scary gallows are erected and a noose comes down and the trap door opens in the stage and you feel his fear mm -hmm. you feel it viscerally and without a word being said, the stakes for that character are set. Yeah. And it's so dramatically. And I thought, I want to do something as the opening scene of The Assassin. Because people are only going to care about the solutions if they think it's really urgent and it matters. Yeah, a bit of fact. But I don't want to feed them a load of dry statistics. I don't want to show them loads of news bulletins. We've seen... Mm. You know, koala bears on fire and decimated forests. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh my God, you've had it really bad in America. Southern Europe on fire and France yeah. and in Germany. We're desensitized to that. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what can we do on stage that would be as dramatic <laughs> but show the stakes for climate change, get that sort of visceral sense of urgency? Yeah. So if any of your students have got any ideas, do yes. let me know. <laughs> yeah, this will be a call. We can do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really interested in writing, specifically creative writing. Mm -hmm. And I wrote academically for years and it was such a, I still do, but it's such a breath of fresh air to not do that and write for fun. Yeah. And I did it recently. And I don't think I've done that since uh, grade eight in, in, in middle yeah. school. That's a long time ago, unfortunately. So I'm, I want to know from you, who's who's written a lot, and, and about climate, if someone is listening here and they want to kind of use your mantra, right, <laughs> uh, what kind of tips can you give them about getting started writing um, fiction for a cause? Okay. I think my main tip is enjoy the process mm -hmm. because if you want to get anything published traditionally, it's harder and harder because Amazon now have taken such a big share of the, the profit, yeah. publishers are now really are focusing just on their bestsellers mm -hmm. and with a very few exceptions. 
even people who've already got traditional publishers, if they're not in the top 10, are not really getting such great value. Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, you know, it's just more books. Yeah. But that nowadays, these gatekeepers don't apply anymore because there's a whole independent publishing movement and it's easy enough to get published. The marketing then is the issue. Yeah, the marketing. The Alliance of Independent Authors is, is quite a good... There's some groups like that which can give you tips on writing and so on. So I would just, just write and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's creative writing classes. I, like I said, keep an eye on our Green Stories competitions because yeah. we often have competitions and they can create a nice deadline for you. <laughs> yes, that's what helped me. Just I entered yeah. a writing competition uh, on climate fiction and the deadline was like in two weeks when I saw it. And I'm like, okay. I mean, a lot of the competitions are scams. You have to pay an awful lot to enter. And it's just a money-making. Yeah, and yours is free though, right? Yours is free. Mine is free, Perfect. yeah. And what we're doing now, I'm trying to previous winners, publish them. I set up an imprint, Habitat Press, to support. Oh, that's wonderful. And so we've published one of our winners. I'm hoping to publish the winner from last year soon. He's, he's still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great it a story. Well, yeah. I to your uh, assassin's question, and mm. one of the techniques I learned in creative writing, I took a few courses in it, actually, that's how much I want to do this, uh, in world building, was around characters and really yeah. building the characters. So I'm wondering with your assassin's question, uh, the way that I've been doing it is I draw little circles in a circle and each circle is a character in the story. And then I draw connections between the characters if there is any, and I find out who's, maybe I don't need this character anymore because they're not really connecting with anyone. So I'm wondering if there's a character in your story where there's going to be a lot of connection between that character and the audience and the readers, I should say, and everyone else in it where something happens to that character and it's like a, yeah. Well, the, victim, the whole web, right? Yeah. The Everyone has a reason to dislike the victim, which becomes apparent. But I'm not going to get to it because at the start, you don't know who the victim's going to be. Yeah. Okay. You don't know who the murderer's going to be. But yeah, it's exactly that. It's a web. Mm-hmm. A, a web of characters. Back that so. web and you can you can make us care, right? That, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to... As this solution, uh, this season is all about solutions. I want to focus on some of the success stories that you've had from storytelling. And what have been some of your favorite outcomes from the stories you've told in terms of maybe some climate action, uh, maybe a response from a reader or, or anything like that? Yeah. uh, No, that's been, that's a good question. So like I said, there was some research on readers who read Habitat Man. We had 50 people who sort of gave their responses before the book, during, after, and then one month after. Oh, wow. And so I'm not directly part of that analysis, but the preliminary results were sent to me. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting because you you write, it's just you you and your keyboard, and you don't always appreciate the effects it's having in the real world. I mean, you hope yeah. it is. And you, you never know sometimes, yeah. But 
I got some lovely reviews on Amazon of people who said, <laughs> you know, how they responded to it. And that, that was really nice. And a couple of people have written to me personally. Oh, well. My, uh, in terms of the research, 98% of people adopted at least one green alternative. So sometimes that one person said, oh, I was going to pave over my back garden. But actually, no, I think I'll let the grass grow. And then it, I didn't want to mow the lawn. That's why I wanted to do it. But now I realize long grass is better for habitats and I'll get yeah. more wildlife and butterflies. So now I think, right, I will embrace that. So I wrote my, my hero. Uh, one of the big things I wanted to talk about was home composting. Yeah. Because it's, it's a big deal. If you throw sort of food waste in the bin, it, you know, causes methane emissions if it goes to landfill if yeah, it's incinerated it uses more energy whereas actually it makes really really good compost mm -hmm. um so i actually thought well show don't tell i i had uh, i came across a composting toilet at a, at a music festival <laughs> and i've been to glastonbury and the toilets that stink and then i oh, went yeah. to this one best of all where they had composting toilets and they just smelt of sawdust and hamsters and yes <laughs> I've used one. They're lovely, aren't they? Yeah, I was to I was like grossed out at first, but then it didn't smell. It's so much nicer. So, and you can get really stylish ones online as well. They're really groovy. So I thought, well, <laughs> I'm going to try one in my own. Designers so, coming through. Right. Yeah, it, they really are cool. Uh, I think Strumpet and Trollop was the composting toilet company. <laughs> That's a you funny can't name. argue with a name like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> So I got one in my own shed. So it's meant that if you had barbecues, people didn't have to tramp all the way through. You know, especially in COVID times, it's really handy having an outdoor toilet. And then I wrote to scene. I thought my hero has a big life-turning revelation in the composting toilet. And, you know, the lights shine through. And it's a religious moment. And <laughs> a lot of people, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I've a lot of people have big moments on the toilet where they got time to think. Yes. And I thought, well, let's just embrace this. And what more ultimate metaphor is there for the circular economy than a composting economy? And a lot of people responded to that and said they were really inspired by it. I have people saying, can I come and see your composting spot? <laughs> a tour of your home to see how it works. <laughs> yeah, so most of my stuff, I mean, I had stuff on pesticides and... A lot of people changed their attitude towards that. They didn't realize that pet flea treatments and worming treatments were so toxic to wildlife. I know. I, I learned that a couple of years ago. Yeah, a lot of people just don't know that. So I didn't bother putting stuff in that everyone knew. I kind of dripped stuff in, you know, character has a dog, you know, and uh, that people maybe didn't know. So that a lot of people responded saying, I really didn't know that. I used to yeah. do it every month, even if I didn't need to, just in case. Now I'm just going to be much more selective when I use it or yeah. what I use. So that was really heartening, particularly when people took the time to email me directly, but also from some of the reviews, which, which were really nice. And just the general research of people who wouldn't necessarily have chosen to read this, but, you know, the wild take part in research because they get paid a bit. And... Uh, I mean, not everyone will like it. And that's one thing I noticed. If you're not into rom-coms, you're not going to like Habitat, man. It's yeah. it's not laugh out loud funny. It's all gentle, lyrical sort of, you know, humor rather than sort of 
jokes or anything like that. But if it's your kind of thing, then people like it. And the, the danger is if you try and get people to read it and think it's something different. <laughs> yeah. And this is where I learned because I originally sort of put the, you know, there's a mystery of the body in the garden and people are expecting a thriller then. Yeah. And they didn't like it because actually it's not a thriller. It's more sort of nature and love, more gentle than that. There are exciting moments, but it's not going to fulfill someone who's after that. So I learned as well that managing people's expectations of what the book is going to be. Mm. But it was hard because, you know, in the publishing world, they always say, well, what else is like that? Right. Out yeah. And say, this is like this. But I couldn't find any books that were eco-themed rom-coms. I, I really cannot find another book like it. You're and starting a whole genre with this. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. But <laughs> Love actually beats the day after tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But I look forward to reading yours, Eric. So I need to send that to you. Yeah, I need to yeah. send that to you. And I bet it was really nice to have that feedback from your readers. It's always kind of unexpected. And I mean, you don't, you're, you're probably not writing to get those responses, but when you get them, it's, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. I got a few I recently. It's so nice. And if anyone's out there and reads anything, they like, do take the time to write to the author. We love it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's going in the dark days when we're stuck. Yeah. I, I recently got a two really nice emails about this podcast, which was mm -hmm. unexpected and just, it made me feel like, okay, all this work is, is potentially worth it. If just those yeah. two emails, right? We need that, don't we? we need yeah. That. Well, from Fidel Castro to composting toilets, we're coming to <laughs> end here. And you never thought you'd say that, did you? No, no. It's a great name for the show as well. I want to ask you the last question and my favorite one is if if you were to jump into my shoes or any design educator's shoes uh, for a day or a week or a month and teach a class on on what you know on climate action what would you assign to the students what would you make them do okay what are they designing that's up to you. Right. <laughs> this is a tough one. It is a tough one. I would always think, I mean, certainly as a writer, I think, what do you want the reader to do as a result of reading what you've written? Right. So what, you know, what results from that? And people often don't ask themselves that question. Mm -hmm. So I think, what do you want people to do with whatever it is you've designed? Right. And it's an obvious question, but it's amazing that people don't ask it more often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and to your point earlier about thinking ahead, what do you want that whatever is designed, where is it going to end up in the world if, yeah. you're, not, if you're not using it anymore? Exactly. So, so think that through. Like with the stories about people going off to tackle rainforest loggers, it's like, are you really expecting your readers to do that? If not, yeah. what can they do as a result of reading this? Yeah. Other We're not in the end of Jones, right? We're not... Isn't it terrible? We're chopping, you know, forests down. We already know that. Mm -hmm. So, but your point, you kind of answered your own question. How's that product or service going out into the world? Right. Where yeah. will it end up? 
I'm sorry for stealing your thunder there. <laughs> no, it was a good one. And it made me think some of the arguments I had with some of the engineers writing stories that they'd want great big solar shades, like reflecting sun back up into the sky. Oh, right. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, that could do amazing things. But what if it got into the wrong hands? Mm-hmm. Like you've kind of created a weapon, a sort of James Bond villain yes. kind of thing. Yeah, you don't and want to do that. It's that short-sightedness of thinking, yes, this may be absolutely wonderful, but how is it going to pan out in the world pragmatically and realistically? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are the dangers? Yeah. I like that too. What if your design fell into the wrong hands? What would happen? Yeah. And I think question. sometimes we're too quick to innovate and mm-hmm. too excited by our own ideas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they might manifest in the world. We like to latch on to our first ideas and never give them up. And that's not a yeah. good strategy, especially I students do that. Moral imagination, I think, as well. Just taking moral the moment. Moral imagination. Moral imagination. Just is that your visualize, turn? visualize how it might work in the world. And will you get any unintended effects that you hadn't expected? So just a little bit of thoughtfulness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. Well, thank you, Janice. We got this together. Yeah, it's been a wonderful uh, hour together, and it's been a pleasure having you on Climify. Before we go, where can we, again, find you online? Okay, so you can find me online at dabaden.com, B-A-D-E-N, greenstories.org.uk, and the books I mentioned, which are Habitat Man and No More Fairy Tales, Stories to Save Our Planet, are available from all online retailers in paperback, ebook. Habitat Man is also an audiobook. And you can oh. also direct from uh, the habitatpress.com, which is the publisher website. I'll look. Ebooks will get there very quick. Paperback, because it's coming from the UK, will take quite a long time. So if you want a paperback fast, best go via Amazon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Denise. It's been a pleasure having you. and. I could talk way more about writing. Maybe we'll do that over email because there's a lot of questions I still have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, thank you for inviting me. And I want to hear back from your listeners if they've got any good ideas. need your help, everybody, for her asking story. All right. Thank you, Denise. Climify is produced, edited, and engineered by me. A huge special thanks this season to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding. Matula Rashid and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help. Bianca Sandico as our new podcast manager. And Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on helping to improve the offerings of this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.